Hello and welcome back to Taming the Titans, a podcast from human rights organization Article 19. I'm Emily Hart, and in this, our fourth episode, Big Brother versus Big Other, we'll be looking at privacy and data protection under surveillance capitalism, the risks posed by big tech and their data practices, and the hope embodied by the new Digital Markets Act. So what's the problem for users of online services and their human rights? And could the new movement towards legislation, particularly in the European Union's new regulatory framework, the Digital Markets Act, restore the rights which companies have been eroding for decades? To face those big questions, I'll shortly be chatting to Luis Fernando Garcia and Tomaso Falqueta. Luis is the executive director and co-founder of R3D, a digital rights organization based in Mexico. Tomaso leads Privacy International's global policy engagement, developing the organization's international advocacy with the UN, the EU, and other intergovernmental bodies. The price of entry to use dominant social media platforms and search engines, the ones billions of us are on, is surveillance. To use services, we hand over an amount of data most of us do not understand or meaningfully consent to. Civil society and analysts spent much of the 20th century concerned by Big Brother, an intrusive, ever-present surveillance state. But new digital surveillance capacities, born in the 21st century, have created a new presence. Big Other, as author and professor Shoshana Zuboff calls it. Corporations watching us more closely than any state apparatus ever has. The difference is we've put Big Other in our own pockets and our own homes. Big Brother and Big Other are not mutually exclusive, of course. The 21st century has seen some historic state surveillance, as well as from the private sector, with concerning overlap and cooperation between the two structures of surveillance. Data from Fitbit, Amazon Echo and even pacemakers has been used in investigations and legal cases. And governments have made numerous attempts to deputise Big Other for monitoring, particularly terrorist content. In an ideal world, a world where data protection rules are enforced properly, companies would apply data minimization, i.e. collect the minimum amount of data required to offer a certain service, as well as purpose limitation, i.e. only using the data for the specific purpose for which it has been collected, a purpose which needs to be communicated to the user, who needs to consent to that use. This is not even close to what's going on. In the early 2000s, when Google started harnessing this data from our behaviour on its platforms, the data would be plugged back into the service itself, used to improve Google's own services. Those days are long gone. The huge amount of personal data companies collect is now mainly used to create detailed profiles and predictive models, to guess with remarkable certainty how people will respond to certain cues, certain ads, certain messaging, or even certain fonts and images. These predictive models are then sold to advertisers, but not only advertisers. Anyone with an interest in how people behave and how that behaviour can be nudged or conditioned can pay to play in this new market. Google and Facebook, now Alphabet and Meta, were pioneers and architects of surveillance capitalism. Only a few years on, they have an effective duopoly over this new world, and their data and modelling of behaviour is used to shore up their own market positions. The two companies are even under investigation, for an agreement between them which would even further preclude other actors from the ad tech market. In the e-commerce world, Amazon now uses that data to manipulate their own marketplace. They know what's selling, to who, at what price, and they design products to beat or push out competitors, often sellers on their own platform. 
Fundamentally, we are not the real clients of social media platforms. For the most part, advertisers are. Profit and profitability are reliant on the money of clients, i.e. those who buy the predictive models. We, meanwhile, are the product. Our data, our behavioural footprint and our attention. The minutes and hours we spend scrolling, searching and interacting online. The absorption of multiple companies under umbrellas like Alphabet and Meta and the arrival of so-called smart devices, wearables and web-connected appliances known as the Internet of Things, allowed these companies to become shapeshifters, working across various applications on our phones and computers, as well as being quietly present in our homes through Amazon Alexa or Google Nest. The data collected from this nebulous range of products is sloshed between them and shared with the parent company, as well as being sold on to third parties. Massive data collection allows tech giants to strengthen their monopoly power and erect barriers to competitive entry. But that's not the only issue with this kind of surveillance, storage and analysis. These companies know more about us than we understand or consent to. They sell that information to anybody they like, often in breach of data protection rules, which are very rarely enforced. This is the very core of the big tech business model. It's toxic, invasive and really, really bad for our rights to privacy and data protection. In fact, current ad tech is fundamentally incompatible with those human rights. The effects are all too real, both online and off, from discrimination on ethnic and religious grounds to insurance prices, as well as an array of political risks for those who dissent under authoritarian governments. The full effects of this new online architecture of surveillance and discursive control are still emerging, both in terms of its psychic toll on us as individuals and its ramifications for us as nations and as a global society. We don't have the full picture yet, but one thing is clear. We need a radical, structural overhaul. The lack of competition in the market contributes directly to this scenario, principally in creating the sense of resignation and futility, a reluctant acceptance which pervades our interactions with these companies. We do know we're being spied on, so where is our collective outrage? Where is our protest? But we shrug and we joke about our phones listening to us. We keep scrolling, albeit unnerved by that ad for a knee support we'd only worked out we needed that morning. This is not even to mention the more sinister revelations of recent years, most memorably the Cambridge Analytica scandal. We know we've got nowhere to go if we want to keep using these services, which most of us tend to. They are now so embedded in our lives and so key to our social interactions. The lack of options in the market feeds directly into our normalisation of a massive erosion of our most fundamental rights. So could the new movement towards legislation, particularly the EU's new regulatory framework, the Digital Markets Act, restore those rights which we have been losing for decades? To meet those big questions with big answers, we have Luis and Tommaso. So welcome both. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So Tommaso, how are these social media platforms and their market dominance cause for concern around privacy and data rights? Yes, um, the way we see is that uh, there's been a, a significant trend uh, in the consolidation of digital markets with a uh, few big tech companies uh, really having dominance in these markets and sometimes having basically full control of those markets as almost as a, a monopoly. And uh, as, as they do that, uh, um, we see sort of a, a vicious cycle at play. Uh, because of their dominance, these companies can collect a vast amount uh, 
of, of our personal information. And the more information they collect, the better they become at uh, profiling individuals, using these profiles uh, to uh, sell to advertisers, political parties and others, uh, as well as using them to improve uh, their own services to individuals. And so the more people then uh, get attracted to these services and uh, the less uh, individual users have actually the power to opt out uh, of this corporate uh, sort of data exploitation model uh, because there are no other services that they can go to. So they're kind of locked into uh, a particular service uh, that can impose uh, uh, whichever uh, terms and conditions they would like to. Right. So, Luis, how did those issues interact with concerns around free speech? Well, I think uh, in the same way in which big tech can dictate the terms that basically users are forced to accept, there's an illusion of consent uh, uh, when they accept because they really don't have any other really real choice uh, with regard to the use of their personal data. This also creates a big power from these companies on how they dictate the rules of public discourse. Uh, because they concentrate in many ways, in many places in the world, maybe not all platforms everywhere, but a few platforms in many places. They uh, basically control the modern public square, no? the place where uh, society communicates and, and even, for example, political discourse uh, happens. So this uh, ability to, to hold this power and to dictate the terms also gives them a, a great power uh, and responsibility with regard to what they do and what they don't do with regard to the content that is in their platforms. They can take down content that, that can affect freedom of expression, or they can also leave content that uh, affects democracy and, and other values, which are not universal. No, uh, um, there, there are differences uh, in how many parts of the world interpret reality. And, and definitely companies hold and impose some of their values in how they moderate the content of, of their politics or how they don't moderate the content in their platforms. Right. It's so interesting that you use the expression town square, hmm. uh, because when we're talking about these incredibly detailed data profiles and the personalization of content, we no longer have a town square. None of us are looking at the same thing when we enter onto a social media platform, which a lot of us do to get to get our news and information. So what are the effects of that, of the non-existence of a town square, of this hyper-personalized experience? What are the effects of that on public discourse? Well, I, I think it, it there is and there isn't a town square. There is, I think users feel like they are in an equal standing with everyone else and that they're, they're having the same experience as any other user, but reality, as you well mentioned, is this different. So I think this poses particular uh, uh, challenges because uh, it, I think it, it exacerbates the possibility of users to be manipulated into believing things uh, because they, they feel confident that the realities that they're, they are experimenting are, are shared with, with, with others. Hmm. But this profiling and this hyper-personalization of, of targeting not only from advertising but by messages themselves and it's it holds in my opinion greater power and and creates greater problems 
one issue that I think is, is particularly relevant in, in, with regard to this is how the incentives from different parties are, are different. The, the companies usually and the, their business model uh, wants users to stay in their platform as much time as possible uh, because that's how they can both collect more data from them and be able to personalize their experience better or the personalize the experience of the advertiser better. Uh, and also they can sell more advertising to those users. And this has led to some claims that uh, platforms have uh, used this in order to maximize users to stay in their platforms. They have often highlighted or pushed content that provokes that desire to stay in the platform. And normally uh, that content is not necessarily the most measured, the most smart, the most evidence-based content. It's the content that generates emotions, that bad or good emotions, and often misinformation and disinformation is, is the content that allows platforms to retain users' attention uh, in their platforms. So I think the, the, the difference in incentives creates also different expected outcomes from the user and from the platform, which creates other types of problems, both to privacy and to freedom of expression. Yeah, no, I just wanted to add uh, in terms of the town square uh, metaphor, it's quite an interesting one, I think, because uh, it gives uh, also this impression for users that, um, that it can be anonymous online. Uh, you know, like you can be in a public space uh, and hide uh, in the crowd. Uh, and that is actually not the case uh, because uh, of the way um, the data is collected and also the way you can be tracked across different devices and across different websites. You, you leave a lot of uh, digital traces that uh, for companies are, are extremely important uh, as part of their profiling. Uh, and that really leads uh, uh, to also this uh, um, misinterpretation of uh, digital space as a space where you can uh, you can protect your anonymity. This is not uh, this is not always the case, uh, even when you use a pseudon uh, pseudonymous like on uh, on a social media, etc. Uh, there are ways to track you down and to to actually identify individuals. Uh, let alone uh, sort of uh, scraping information or facial recognition, uh, using facial recognition to kind of uh, identify people uh, online. Uh, it's sort of a, a, another type of surveillance that is often not, uh, not considered. Right. And I think all of this goes to the very core of the profit models of a lot of these companies. So if privacy is the ultimate source of profit for some of the biggest companies in the world, making money for some of the richest men in the world, what are the effects on human rights for human beings in the real world of the commodification of our privacy? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's very difficult to really track uh, uh, these uh, these examples of uh, of profiling and effects it have on the individuals because. Uh, uh, because also of the lack of transparency of these companies' uh, practices, but you know, at Privacy International, we we did some uh, uh, some analysis, for example, of uh, popular mental health websites uh, in uh, in various countries uh, to identify how much these websites are sharing uh, user data with advertisers, uh, with uh, data brokers, uh, and with uh, with some of these large tech companies uh, such as Google. And uh, what we found uh, is um, was quite significant. They really leak uh, um, sensitive personal information 
to to a variety of, of parties, uh, and obviously that uh, uh, is you know is is information that uh, then is used. Uh, uh, by by these uh, these actors that that collect or or, or buys this this data uh, to target uh, to target individuals and so they exploit uh, information as sensitive as like your your mental health status uh, to to target you with particular ads. So we have, we have run this kind of research for uh, for mental health. We have also done uh, similar things. Uh, in, in terms of uh, other type of uh, of tracking uh, of people's uh, of people's personal data, and that's basically what we found: this kind of very opaque market of uh, very sensitive personal information. Yeah, if I can add a little bit to that, uh, as I was mentioning, obviously for companies, their incentive is to profit, no, and, and they know very well the consequences of all this processing of personal data. They know how they process the data. They know everything because they are the ones doing the processing and profiting from that data. But the users do not have that knowledge. And this is important because the consequences of clicking I accept are not really transparent and clear for users. Uh, however, we've been knowing that all this collection of personal data is creating consequences that are adverse for the users that click I accept. And it's not their fault. There's everything against them. There's uh, on the side of the companies, it's just hundreds of lawyers that carefully redacted a document that it's uncomprehensible for most people. Uh, a user that all, all they want is just to use a tool to connect with their friends or to do business or to work or whatever they use all these platforms for. However, as we are also seeing, for example, automated decision making in more aspects of our lives, for example, software that is used to see if you are hired or not hired on a job, uh, whether you get access to certain services. Many of these credit scores, etc., are fed by data that you supposedly gave away with your consent. However, you, you didn't know that this data was going to be used for that. And you didn't know that you were denied that credit. You didn't get that job. And, if, and maybe in places that are more authoritarian, that you cannot leave your city or, uh, I mean, obtain certain public services because you did a thing or two online, no? So this is one of the main problems that as a society, since we cannot see the real consequences of clicking I accept, it's difficult, even for us who are NGOs, who we dedicate 24-7 to this, it's difficult for us to re be able to really tell you all they're doing with the data, but each time we look a little bit we see things that are concerning. And, and this is something that the first thing that we need to tackle. There needs to be clarity about those consequences. And also all the burden shouldn't be put on the user. This is where the state is supposed to enter. We don't say like, oh, well, this company is poisoning people with their product and it's your fault because you accepted to drink that poison. The yeah. state says, no, you cannot sell poison. No, So th there needs to be certain interventions that allow us to know what's going on and to be able to put red lines to prevent these bad practices from happening. Right. So these data profiles can feed into discrimination and political oppression. So the question is, I think, who is the most at risk? Well, I, I think everyone is at risk at some point. Obviously, the, the, the usual suspects are like journalists in danger, human rights defenders. But I mean, as societies are becoming like these dystopian surveillance states everywhere, not only in authoritarian countries, uh, and more and more 
data is collected from us and more and more decisions are being taken into consideration, all this data aggregated, everyone's at risk. And I think that's something really important for all people to hear. This is, if you're not a journalist and a human rights defender, you, you still need to worry because you might, as I was saying, you might be affected in a decision by a company or the state that it's taken on the basis of the data you generate when you use online services. Yeah, mm. I, I agree with what uh, Luis has just said. And, and, and just to, to add, in, in data protection, there is a, there used to be, I mean, there still is a, this distinction between personal data and sensitive personal data with this idea that uh, there is certain data that uh, uh, show the characteristic of an individual, uh, uh, like its uh, belief, uh, uh, health, uh, um, you know, sexual uh, um, orientation, etc., and 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 how these data in theory should be more protected and you know require a, a different kind of standard before uh, you can actually process and use it. But the reality is that uh, with um, with the kind of um, uh, data collection that we see and the capacity of companies to cross uh, reference different data sets and also, you know, as I just said, uh, uh, tracking you across different devices, etc. cetera, uh, this distinction uh, um, gets blurred. Uh, and in reality, uh, you, you see companies uh, being able to um, infer characteristics uh, of yourself, which are very intimate, really kind of uh, uh, are very close to, to the core of your, of your dignity and, and your privacy. And they, and they do that. And then, uh, you know, uh, beyond the, the most uh, um, nefarious ways of like it being uh, potentially a risk of, uh, of, you know, state unlawful surveillance, et cetera, uh, there is also the fact that you, you end up being targeted by ads because of your, uh, you know, like say mental health. Uh, and the ads are not necessarily ads uh, or, or messages uh, that are uh, supportive uh, of your mental health. They can also be uh, things that actually make it, uh, that are harmful. And, and similarly for like things like uh, your sexual orientation, I mean, you think about different societies have a completely different kind of, uh, um, you know, approach to that uh, or uh, issues around uh, sexual and reproductive rights, uh, including you know, uh, whether or not uh, uh, you have interest in uh, accessing uh, uh, abortion clinic and the like. Um, so it really opens up uh, an ind individuals and society um, to a lot of exploitation. Absolutely. And Luis, you, you mentioned that the government should be the actor in charge here. They should be mediating between company and user. And there is, as we've been talking about in this series, there is an opening conversation towards market regulation to crack open the power of these companies. But if the very profit models of these companies are built on this massive data collection and data sharing, how tough is it going to be to convince these companies to change their practices when there is so much money to be made? I mean, if I may, I just want to give a, a slightly positive slant, let's say, Me too. <laughs> um, because uh, it's true we are facing uh, very powerful companies uh, with a very significant uh, interest uh, in maintaining the business model of exploitation of data that, that we see. At the same time, I mean, this conversation is, is an example, but I think uh, there is uh, a significant increase uh, in uh, public uh, perception of the importance of privacy, of the importance of data protection and the like. And I, I have a feeling that that cuts across uh, societies around the world. And, and that is definitely an important aspect. And then you have uh, intervention of um, regulators 
both data protection regulators and uh, competition regulators, antitrust regulators, are beginning to look uh, at how data is exploited by, by companies. A lot of the media attention is, is often to do with like big fines, which is fine, it's important. Uh, but if you look uh, at some of the recent decisions, uh, it's not only fines, because uh, big tech uh, can absorb fine relatively easily. But it also includes uh, changes in behavior. Uh, so, so there are remedies that, that are put forward by, by regulators. And I think this is maybe beginning to turn the tide a little bit. And we have seen, uh, you know, some of these big tech companies recently, their profit has been slashed for a variety of reasons. But I, I like to believe that it also includes the fact that uh, their business model has now been challenged more. Right, because if, yeah. if the treatment is a fine and the fine is much less than the profit, that fine, and we see this across many industries, the fine simply becomes part of the calculation of profit. Is it worth Absolutely. it? Can we afford the fine? And these these are companies that can afford fines. They can definitely afford fines. And actually, if you look at their sort of annual report, they often kind of say, oh, we keep aside this money in case uh, we we get fined or something. But what they cannot afford, or, or at least where they will struggle more, is when the remedy also um, affects their, uh, their capacity to collect and, and use the data. And I think, as I said, some of the decisions, uh, uh, recent decisions, like... I mean, to just give an example, uh, um, Privacy International has been uh, pushing some regulators to um, to address uh, Clearview AI, that sort of is a facial recognition company. And um, four out of the five regulators that we approached did uh, not only fine Clearview, but they also demand uh, the deletion of the data and the stopping of the of, of this data processing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this starts to kind of actually affect their business model because they cannot do it. I mean, they can find ways to do it, but the decision is that they cannot do it. They go out of the legality if they continue doing it. Mm. Yeah, and, and I agree with that, but I, I should also make like a caution, I think, because I think this problem is very complex and there is basically two poles of the discussion that are, are both really harmful, I think. On, on one side, there's this deregulation or push by companies uh, with all their lobbying power to not be regulated in any way, shape, or form. This sort of neoliberal uh, way of, of dealing with companies online, which is leaving users to be abused by these companies. But then some, in, in many places in the world, have used this legitimate concern for the power of big tech to empower states to do things that are also harmful for society. Yes. You know, that there's this state authoritarian laws and, and authorities who, with the pretext of curbing the power of big tech, uh, give themselves great power to surveil, to censor, to be abusive towards their society. And I think when we're talking about regulation, we're trying, we, we should be aiming at escaping those two binary choices that are being pushed by basically the two biggest world powers as well. No? And I think some are, are, are trying with good things and bad things. It's not perfect. But I think we should be aware that these forces are, are there and that uh, we should not be utilized by any of those narratives mm. uh, because it's very easy to, to be convinced of one way or the other. We should build regulation that uh, it's democratic, that it's human rights-based, and that both wants to regulate strongly, 
big tech, but does not give repressive states powers to control what's going on online and to curve the liberties and freedoms that, that people enjoy online. Yeah. And there's there's such an important question there about state intention and benevolence in doing this. Um, and also, mm-hmm. of course, the company's intention, you know, ethics versus versus profit. Uh, but some new document analysis from earlier this month, which was looking into Meta, the company that owns Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp, among other companies, This company was unable to even produce information about what user data sat under which of its systems, let alone produce justification for holding it. So there's a bit of a question about, you know, these companies have been amassing data. Are they going to be able to comply? Do they have the systems in place to actually be regulated properly? Yeah, I mean, uh, compliance has a cost. And uh, the fact that uh, these uh, these companies have been able uh, uh, so far to kind of go scot-free and uh, collect and process data without any any sort of um, uh, safeguards. Uh, well, yeah, that's that's a problem. I mean, you know, one could argue that uh, maybe um, regulation as, as is, is catching up. Uh, these companies have managed to build their uh, well, their power on, on on the back of uh, users' data for quite a long time. Uh, now they have to put their house in order. Um, the other point I want to make very briefly is that uh, these companies know very well what these regulations look like and what it is expected of them. I mean, they've been lobbying very strongly. I, I mean, I'm talking about the EU to start with. Uh, you know, the, the capacity of these companies to lobby legislators is very significant. They know they know very well what these regulations uh, are going to require of them. They, they will fight it. But now in some cases, there is the law and we just need to see how how they're going to change their practices. There's certainly an extra concern raised there then that if these companies are able to wield enormous power in the formation of market regulation, uh, which works, you know, to regulate them in Europe, what kind of Mm -hmm. challenges are we looking at outside of Europe? where regulators have less resources, well, they may be less independent. Regulation in Europe affects people in other places in the world in several ways. You know, uh, sometimes companies just say, well, to comply with re- European regulation, I need to change this and this, and I'm just going to change it for all my users, for good or bad. No? Uh, uh, and, and that happens, but sometimes that doesn't happen. And then there's some sort of anxiety by regulators or in other places like, hey, I, I also want what Europeans are having. Can I have that, please? And it's difficult because they're small countries. They're, they're not a regional bloc like the European Union. In a way, big tech companies don't care much about what the legislature of a small country in South America or Africa does. And also the regulators, legislators are more vulnerable to the lobbying charges of these companies as well uh, at some point. But on the other side, then you have all these legislators that are wanting to be seen as heroes against these big tech giants. And they come, they come up with really bad pieces of legislation that, as I was cautioning before, basically are, are more um, uh, creating mechanisms to extort big tech companies for more, not necessarily public interest at heart, uh, or to have or to give the state powers that allows them to have more control, surveillance, censorship powers uh, on the population. Uh, I think there are alternatives. I mean, uh, there are alternatives, but I think, for example, Latin America, the region that I am from, we're seriously discussing on on 
at least on these issues, on competition, data protection, to come up with regional instruments and regional mechanisms to, to be able to put together our, our, our small pieces of, of power uh, and be able to compete in, in regulation and enforcement with other regions of the world because we are left unseen. And also, I mean, European legislators, they don't legislate thinking of, of the problems that exist in Africa or Latin America. They think about their issues. So in a way, the Global South is left out from the decisions on how these companies are restricted or not. Mm. And I think that touches on a really key issue, which we've seen uh, with the Digital Markets Act, the, the absence of civil society advocating for people in this debate, because we've got markets and companies and regulators and the ability of civil society organizations to get into the discussion, to bring human rights to the table, and to also bring the contexts of the people they advocate for to the table, which are so different in different regions. Yeah, I mean, it's something that we have experienced uh, when we started engaging with the Digital Markets Act uh, during the negotiations. So our first uh, PI, first sort of uh, statement uh, when uh, when the Commission uh, published the Digital Markets Act is, uh, you have forgotten uh, the individuals. This is all about uh, uh, the big tech uh, and other businesses. Since then, there have been some progresses uh, and uh, thanks uh, particularly to some of the stances uh, uh, that the European Parliament uh, uh, took uh, during the negotiations. You see that the final text uh, have made some progresses in recognizing their, recognizing one, the, the fact that individuals are the one mostly affected. Uh, obviously, you know, you can make the business argument as well, but basically what we are interested in is to see how to address the power imbalance between uh, big tech and individuals. And uh, so, you know, you have a few um, uh, a few of the obligations under the DMA uh, that uh, are in order to try to, to, to address that power imbalance. And secondly, recognizing a, a bit at least uh, the role that civil society can play in monitoring and enforcement uh, of the digital markets act something that wasn't there at all in the initial in the initial uh, text of the commission obviously now the question and i'll finish with that the question for me is uh, uh, what is going to happen with enforcement and, uh, you know, um, you mentioned the fact that companies uh, may struggle to kind of uh, uh, comply with the regulation. Actually, the, the DMA puts a significant uh, powers on the, on the European Commission to enforce the regulation. If uh, the European Commission doesn't uh, kind of put uh, the resources and expertise, uh, as well as uh, recognition of the civil society expertise in developing uh, its, uh, its enforcement mechanism, then uh, there is a there is a risk that the DMA will not kind of have the effect that it that it should have. Hmm. So, final question to end on a bit of a positive note because there is something positive here going on with this opening conversation with these movements in Latin America to bring power together and work to hold these companies accountable. What's the best case scenario for the Digital Markets Act and similar legislation? What's the best case scenario for users for people? around the world continuing to use these social media services? I don't know if it's a realistic scenario, but obviously I think we would like to see that the effects of the regulation are more systemic in the sense that they, they don't just 
alleviate the problems that consolidation of these markets create, but to actually challenge the business model, to challenge mm. the makeup of those markets. Um, I don't think there is a way in which all the public interest outcomes that we want to achieve can be achieved with just a few companies consolidating all the power. And with the business model of surveillance, of massive surveillance of users and these shadow secondary markets of data going on unrestricted. I think those things are just incompatible and we need to choose the societies. And I think if, if, if most societies were given a choice, uh, would say, well, I mean, maybe I can live without having my advertising be super specific. I, I prefer my democracy and my human rights that do read my mind and, and give me the <laughs> ad that I really need. No, um, there, there are other ways in which tech companies can be profitable without the mass surveillance of users mm. happening. And I think that that's where regulation needs to needs to not be timid about and, and not seen as as impossible thing. I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it's I think it's improbable, but I, th I don't think it's impossible. And I think it's it's a political cultural dispute that I think societies need to organize around and need to to force. As Tomaso was saying in the end, for example, the European Commission has great powers, but it's a question whether they will use them. And they won't use them unless they feel politically compelled to. And that's where civil society at large enters uh, as well to make this uh, a politically costly thing not to address and to modify in a structural way the way that the internet works and these companies work. Yeah, I think the, the political pressure is key uh, and, um, you know, it, it cuts across all uh, all different kind of uh, jurisdictions and, you know, going back to, to Europe, uh, you know, the best case scenario for me is to see A, the commission engaging with civil societies in the context of developing the guidelines for uh, the sort of modalities of enforcement of the DMA. This is all kind of process now of, uh, you know, there is a, the regulation, but now there is a process of the rules of how to apply it. Civil society needs to be involved there. And second, you know, sending a strong signal uh, unlike uh, uh, the GDPR, that it took quite uh, some time to get uh, into um, some sort of implementation mode, and there are still big questions about it. We would like to see a strong signal at the start uh, when when the DMA comes into effect uh, of um, good enforcement action, so that um, big companies kind of take notice. That seems like a great place to leave it for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Tommaso and Luis. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening to Taming the Titans. I'll be back with our final episode next week, looking at the future of our human rights online, as well as ways to contain or avoid the other harms caused by the excessive power of big tech. We'll be asking where the rights and interests of human beings can be inserted and advocated for. Somewhere between fear of state overreach in the markets and the titans of surveillance capitalism, there must be a space for human rights and civil society organisations to get heard. So we'll be looking ahead to that coming conversation, at how we can constructively participate and get our voices heard as competition policies start to take shape, making sure human rights and democracy are embedded in the projects which aim to tame the titans.